All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And uh, my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And you can uh, subscribe to both of those letters by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or call our number in New York during normal work hours at uh, 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show and uh, would encourage you to send along your questions, comments, criticisms, and praises to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Also, go to jtaylormedia.com to read a, a host of articles that are there, some of which are yours truly's uh, articles, and some are from various other experts uh, in the field of uh, geopolitics and finance and economics and, uh, and markets. I would uh, like to also thank our sponsors for making the show economically viable. Our sponsors today are the Met- our Metanor Resources and Avino Silver and Gold Mines. And I might mention that Metanor is now drilling uh, its berry deposit, and so we're awaiting uh, some news to come from that. Before I talk about today's show, I do have a few announcements I'd like to make. Gold is on a tear, or at least the mining shares are up. Gold is up. Uh, was up earlier today. Uh, actually, over twelve hundred and fifty dollars, twelve fifty-three right now, to be exact. But the mining shares are really rising very dramatically, and and given the dramatic move in the gold and silver shares after this four-year bear market that's been one of the worst that I can remember in my career, I'm very excited about the upcoming Metals Investor Forum that's going to be held at the Georgia Hotel in downtown Vancouver on May fourteenth and fifteenth. I would suggest that you, if you're in that area or if you can make it to this uh, conference, I think you're going to really enjoy it. If you're an investor in the mining shares, uh, it's the Metals Investors Forum. You do do need to pre-register. There is a set number of people that would be allowed in the doors. It's free of charge, but if you want to attend this and can attend it, I would urge you to go to J. Taylor Media. Click on the banner, the Metals Investor Forum banner. Very simple, 30-second fill-out form. Send it in, and you will be allowed in the door. If you get in there, the first, I think, first five or 600 people uh, that are allowed to attend this event. To keep in mind that the companies that present there are there only by invitation of the newsletter writers, writers like Brent Cook, Brian London, Eric Coffin, Gwen Preston, and yours truly. At this point in time, uh, here are the names of the companies that will be attending. Let me tell you the ones that I follow in my newsletter that are going to be there. 
RN Resources, Silvercrest Metals, Gold Source Mines, New Market Gold, Ciros Resources, Trimetals Mining, and Klondike Gold. Other companies that will be there that uh, other newsletters have uh, recommended, um, and many of the other newsletters uh, writers have recommended the ones I just named as well. But First Mining Finance, Everham Resources, West Red Lake Gold Mines, Kamenek Gold, Colorado Resources, Can Alaska, and Pure Gold Mining, Orizon Resources, Orizon Gold Corp, and Lithium X Energy Corp. Well, that's quite a list of companies, but they are all companies that have been recommended and uh, have been recommended for this conference by the newsletter writers. Um, just, just to give you an example of how exciting this market has turned, two of the companies that are going to be at this conference that I've recommended, uh, Silvercrest Metals and Klondike Gold, are up really big today. Silvercrest up 23.83% earlier today, Silver, uh, and Klondike was up 24%. So both of these stocks are still technically penny stocks. I mean, this is such a depressed market that... Uh, and the and the uh, and, and the market cap on these stocks are just minuscule yet, in spite of the fact that they have some very exciting and promising, and in many cases, uh, metal in the ground that the markets just haven't cared about at all. Uh, the markets have been asleep and haven't priced given any value to these companies that do truly have some good value, uh, intrinsic value. So I would suggest as soon as possible, if you can attend this, go to J. Taylor Media and uh, just click on that banner, Metals Investor Forum, to sign up. The, the show today is titled, Why Are Russia and China Buying Gold? Tons of it. Uh, William Angdell, Daniel McAdams, and Michael Oliver are my guests today. America's ruling elite who are bent on destroying, in my view at least, are bent on destroying the sovereignty of nations, including that of the United States, have denounced gold ownership. Meantime, China and Russia, who are fighting to protect their respective sovereignty, encourage their citizens to get rid of that paper money in favor of gold. China not only imports massive amounts of gold far greater than the government admits to, but it is now the number one gold producer. And, surprisingly, Russia is now reportedly the world's second largest gold producer. Not only that, but Russia and Iran are reportedly selling oil to China, not for dollars, but for gold. Why are these two nations building their gold reserves while the NATO countries are getting rid of theirs? Our main guest today, uh, William Angdell, will provide some answers to that. But also immediately uh, after our first commercial break, Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity will be with me to discuss what is certainly a related matter, in my view at least, and that is the refusal of President Obama to allow relatives of the victims of 9-11 attack to know what, to what extent, if any, Saudi Arabia was involved in the attacks uh, in, uh, on 9-11. Uh, uh, it has come out uh, 60 Minutes, and the New York Times and others have been talking about the missing 28 pages in the 9-11 report, uh, which have most certainly, according to all reports, relate to uh, the uh, some involvement uh, by the Saudi Arabian uh, by Saudi and Arabian citizens, if not the Saudi and Arabian government, and these uh, family members are looking to uh, to sue in U.S. courts uh, the uh, potential people that are responsibly potentially responsible for these actions, and yet they are not able to because uh, they have immunity under New York law. So there is a a law that's being passed through the courts to try to. Uh, to reverse that immunity so that uh, when you're attacked, um, 
as we ha- as we were on 9/11, people that are wronged would have some uh, recourse through the courts. Well, we'll see where that goes. But President Obama apparently is dead set against allowing. Uh, that to happen. We'll be talking to Daniel McAdams about that to get his take on it as well. Meantime, uh, while we are concerned about geopolitics and economics and all that, of closest uh, concern to all of us, I'm sure, is how are our respective portfolios doing and where are they likely to go next, what markets are likely to do best next. And there, I'm very privileged to have with me once again, Michael Oliver. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Oh, great to be here, Jay. Always good to have you here, and uh, the website that we you should all go to is olivermsa.com, olivermsa.com, to learn more about Michael Oliver and his work. Michael, you talked last year, about this time perhaps, or maybe even earlier, about a major tectonic shift in the financial market, specifically stocks and bonds you were suggesting were nearing their top and were likely to head lower, and uh, precious metals and commodities in general likely to head higher. How is that call working out now? And uh, I noticed uh, you headed this last weekend's newsletter that you sent out to your subscribers, The Great Unwinding. But how, how, is, how are things unfolding? Are they going pretty much according to the way you viewed them a year ago or so? Yes. Uh, the, um, the risk here is, I think, the unwinding, the unwinding torpedo, let's call it the, the cause effect of the unwinding, is going to be, in my opinion, an upsurge in commodity prices. Um, I realize that most people are now fully bearish, complacently bearish on commodities, fretting over it, in fact, uh, central banks and so forth. And that's the headline. There's no idea that commodities could actually surge a significant percent. Uh, The assumption would be among most fundamentalists that you need a a rise in demand to take uh, oil up off its low and copper and so forth and so on. Uh, As an ex-commodity guy from the mid-1970s through the 90s, uh, I learned early on that first phases of bull markets are often uh, the unwinding of the excess of the prior bear market. In other words, the prior bear market went too low, too deep, too long. This applies to stocks and commodities and most markets. Well, commodities were driven off the page, particularly oil. Um, you know, it was 147 in 2008. It was uh, lingered either side of 100 uh, between 2011 and 14. And then suddenly goes to near 26. Uh, explain to me how that's not excessive. Mm. Um, I'm expecting a rally in oil and a commensurate rally in other cross-the-board commodity markets uh, up to about $60 in oil. Uh, if we close out the month or any month this quarter at 41.20 or higher, and right now we're trading that level, but it's not the end of the month. Uh, the next contract that comes on is the June comes on on Wednesday morning. It's up above 42 right now. Oil breaks out, natural gas breaks out, gold and silver already have, soybeans and corn are in the process, sugar already has, cotton is threatening. You know, I go down the list and I see an across-the-board ambush in the making. The structures that I see that are being broken out above, they're not price chart phenomenon, they're momentum Mm -hmm. uh, structures of a fairly long-term nature, quarterly momentum. Some of these structures are year two wide bases in momentum action. When you break through things like that, you get bottle rocket effects. So I'm expecting what you can call not a slow upside, but a rapid upside ventilation of some of these oversold markets. The fact that it's coming in unison, or probably, across the board, will mean that the, those analysts who pay attention to commodity-type metrics, and to the extent that those metrics filter into the government metrics, uh, we're going to get more than what the central banks have, have claimed as their policy a goal of 2% inflation. 
they're going to get ambushed, and they're going to get <laughs> rates uh, increased higher than that. Well, what does that do to their intellectual argument? In other words, how can they keep rates at zero or negative if they got their goal? Yeah. Uh, it unwinds them. Therefore, I would turn my focus right now on the commodities for the breakout, which is in process of occurring in my view. And the next I would turn my attention not to stocks, because I uh, regard stocks, basically developed market stock indexes, as uh, secondary or pimples on the body of the debt market, mm-hmm. government debt market. I'm not talking high yield now. I'm talking the safe stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm talking 30-year treasury bonds, uh, 10-year notes, German bonds, etc. I'm watching very closely the action of those markets, because what I see there is that if the commodity markets rally, as I expect, you could undo those debt markets. You could rip them out of the hands of the central banks, and you could raise rates on these long-term government debt instruments. Now, oh, I think boy. we all know what that would do to the stock market. Oh, my goodness. That is, uh, that is frightening. And to think of it, of course, the bond market's far, far larger than the stock markets, but we start to see the safest, quote-unquote, safest debt instruments in the world uh, start to go down in value, rise in, in, in yields, it's going to be a, a, not a very happy event. Michael, of course, that's why I want to own gold, because it's a reverse play. It's a, it's a safe, you know, it's, it's the opposite of the dollar. With just a minute or so left here, uh, you had talked about some very critical levels for the dollar index as well. Now, I'm looking at the dollar index, not at this moment, but earlier in the day. It was 9398 um, how is the dollar looking? Does it look like that is one that's going to? It's in the process of reversing, topping out now. Yes, I, I think it probably has. But I'll tell you what. I think I take the dollar index and put it in the back, put it off to the side. It's a heavily uh-huh. weighted. Fifty-seven percent is the euro. Yeah. Therefore, focus entirely on the euro futures. Euro mm-hmm. futures are right now around one fourteen dollar fourteen. If you can close out any week in the very upper 114s, they call it 114.80, let's say. I've had that number in in reports in recent weeks. You close out a week there, I think the euro is going to join in big time. Now, the yen has already had a a significant advance, but the yen is only uh, 13 or 15 percent of the dollar index, so the euro really is key here. If the euro can launch, and by launch I mean you got up in upper 114s, I think you could see it in the low 120s within Mm -hmm. several quarters. Mm -hmm. That would be extremely upsetting to the dollar. And I actually think there's an intent by central banks to have that happen. Yeah. <clears throat> I think they want the dollar to weaken. And you've explained that in your last weekend report, in fact, with one of your guests, I believe. Yes, that's correct. Uh, that's correct. The yeah. need to, to reduce, uh, to lower the value of the Chinese yuan. But, yes. Michael, with just a, just a few seconds left, I have to ask you about gold. You were looking at sort of your first major resistance area in the renewed bull market in gold of something around 1450 I think. Is that still a number you're looking at? I still at? stick with that. Uh, there's been a lot of congestion here for two months, and I think it's all it is is congestion. And I think that the, the first major barrier, and I don't think it stops it, but I think it's a hiccup point of significance. It's way up there, 1450 Now, uh, you can only take a guess. So I can do it. Uh, where would GDX be at that point? <laughs> yeah. I think GDX might be in the upper 30s. Well, we've seen quite a lot of leverage already, uh, tremendous leverage already in the mining shares relative to the metals, which are up very nicely, one of the best quarters ever in history, first quarters of years. It's to be this year, and it's been our view all along that it's, while gold turns, it's, it's the gold miners that we should beat, the, beat everything on the board by well, large percentages. Well, that's been your view, Michael. I must say, a year ago or so, you've you've seen this coming. It is indeed coming to pass now. Again, folks, it's OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com. Go there to learn more about Michael's work and hopefully 
uh, pick up a subscription because uh, if you can afford it, it's certainly well worth it, I think. Uh, very good money, a very good value for the money, I would say. Uh, and, uh, of course, that's why we like to have Michael on because I treasure his opinions and his work uh, very much. Thanks for being with me again, Michael, and look forward to do it again hopefully next Thank week. You, Jay. All right, folks. Well, don't go away. We are going to go to a commercial break, but when we come back, Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity will be with me to talk about those missing 28 pages of the 9-11 report that has now come into prominence. And even the mainstream folks are talking about it now, not just us wackos, uh, gold bug guys. It's uh, you know mainstream people, CBS, uh, NBC, um, Wall Street Journal, New York Times. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Daniel McAdams to try to make some sense of why President Obama would deny Americans the right to know what really happened on 9-11. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Avino Silver and Gold Mines is a diversified, low-cost producer with operations in Mexico and Canada. Avino is growth-oriented and recently completed a major expansion at its Mexican operation, which doubled its silver equivalent output in 2015. Avino is partnered with Samsung CNT and is now an official metal supplier to one of the world's largest manufacturers of consumer electronics and builder of some of the most prolific engineering projects worldwide. Avino's shares are listed on the NYSE as MKT and the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ASM. If you want a silver lining in your portfolio, think Avino. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity with me once again. Thanks for joining me again, Daniel. It's been way too long. Oh, it's great to be back with you, Jay. Thanks for having me. I apologize. I've got a slight cold, so my voice has been off. Oh, I hate to, I hate to put you through it then. Uh, no, not at all. Yeah, I, I mean, fortunate for you in that regard, we don't have much time, so let's get right into it. Uh, I, I noticed yesterday on the Liberty Report a video on the Ron Paul Institute that you and Dr. Paul talked about this story that's really made uh, the, the mainstream press in a big way. The 60 Minutes talked about it. The New York Times talked about it. Uh, CNBC in the morning was talking about it uh, yesterday. And that is the missing 28 pages, or let's say the pages that are classified from the 9-11 report. And, these, uh, you know, the, the family members of victims of 9-11 are wanting some answers. There seems to be uh, considerable evidence that the Saudis, uh, either the country or people within Saudi Arabia, had something to do uh, with enabling those who drove airplanes into buildings in the United States. And you would think that the American people would, uh, should be able to get that information. Laws were passed uh, in 1976, I believe, that granted immunity for certain uh, kinds of activities from uh, foreigners or foreign diplomats or foreigners in general, I guess, on our soil. 
and there is a bill going through Congress, or at least being introduced by a bipartisan, bipartisan support for a bill in the Senate that would reverse that, that would allow when there's terrorist attacks that take place in the United States for people to be liable and to be uh, able to be tried in American courts for that kind of action. However, it's my understanding, Daniel, that uh, the president is not going along with that. He is, in fact, resisting it and lobbying Congress very heavily, essentially seeming to stand up for the Saudi Arabian government and the people of Saudi Arabia, or the government of Saudi Arabia, I should say, as opposed to the Americans who he is supposed to be the president of. Why do you think the president of the United States would stand against the American people in favor of the Saudi Arabian government? Have you any hunch or any idea what might be going on here? Well, it's fascinating, and actually, you know, uh I think it's, if you can believe this, Jay, I think it's less about Saudi Arabia. I think it's actually about interventionism in general. The, ah. president is, the president is in a real pickle because, on the one hand, we've been conditioned by the media that 9-11 is the most horrific attack since uh, Pearl Harbor, and certainly it was, a, it was very dramatic. And now when you have the possibility of finding out a little bit more about who was behind it, uh, and that is the release of the 28 pages. And, uh, you know, people that have seen it have said it's, it's quite breathtaking. Uh, Senator, former Senator Graham from Florida, Senator Wal- uh, Congressman Walter Jones, and many others have said it's very dramatic. Uh, when you have the opportunity to see, was there Saudi uh, state sponsorship for al-Qaeda or for the attacks themselves? Was there any collusion with the CIA in this? Uh, that might be something embarrassing. Uh, there are many things that could be in there. When we have the opportunity to look at it, um, it has not come out yet. I think it may well come out soon. But the other side of that coin is the Saudi pressure on the U.S. And if you remember, you probably reported on this already, uh, Jay, but uh, the Saudi foreign minister a few days ago or over the weekend, he threatened that Saudi Arabia would dump uh, three-quarters of a trillion dollars in treasuries uh, if they dare pass this legislation that would lift... Um, sovereign immunity from Saudi Arabia uh, if they're shown to have any involvement in the 9-11 attacks. So they all three go together. The 28 pages are released. People look at it and say, wow, the Saudi government was involved. Uh, Our loved ones were killed. Therefore, we're going to sue Saudi Arabia for their role in it. And and this is sort of the chain of, of events that would happen. So along the way, you have this bill that was introduced uh, by Senators Cornyn and Schumer, a bipartisan bill that you referred to. And what it does is it lifts the sovereign immunity in rather a limited way. It lifts it if there is a terrorist attack on U.S. soil where mm-hmm. U.S. citizens are killed, uh, then the, if there is a state sponsor, that state sponsor can be gone after. And from a PR perspective, it's going to be kind of hard to argue against that. I don't think, I think if you interviewed 100 Americans, probably at least 99 of them would say, well, oh, duh, of course you should go after them. Sure. Uh, but, it's, it, but it's putting a pickle uh, in, uh, in, in uh, and this is why I'll come back to my, my long-winded answer. This is where it goes back to interventionism, though, Jay, because it's not simply about Saudi Arabia. The interventionists in the U.S. are terrified that if what foreign governments do that causes harms to Ameri- harm to Americans is, is, can be litigated, then what about harm that's done by the American government to hospitals blown up overseas, to right. collateral damage? Uh, the whole entire interventionist scheme is all about harming, destroying uh, everything overseas. 
And that is why the latest news is there was a mystery senator who was blocking this bill. Uh, and uh, we found out just a little while ago, about an hour ago, that it was none other than Lindsey Graham. Oh, of course. Fine champion of interventionism. <laughs> yeah, that's that's really sad. It's, re- it's really, really sad. Daniel, we just only have another two or three minutes left. So uh, why, where do you, you're covering this at the Ron Paul Institute, aren't you, from time to time? I'm sure this is something that sure. you and Dr. Paul will be talking about on your videos there, right? Yeah, and we do have a, a follow-up. We're going to put up a video on, on, the, uh, on Dr. Paul's uh, 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 Facebook page a little later today. We're going to follow up and bring everyone up to speed about the president's threat to veto the bill. What does it mean? What does it mean for the interventionists? And our greatest hope is that we can shine the light on the fact that this is stuff we're doing to other people all the time, and we, we don't want to be liable for that stuff either. So that's why they're trying to block it. Yeah, well, there could be some people that might be in big, big trouble if there was a, uh, let's say, an objective court of justice that ruled around the world instead of just the United States Court of Justice that decides who is a criminal and who is not a criminal, right? If uh, if the U.S. was subject to the same kind, and it's really, you can understand why, then, uh, so it may be the Treasury issue, which could wreak havoc on the United States markets, on the international markets, that is certainly uh, a possibility, I suppose, although some people think it's more of a bluff than anything else. But uh, yeah. I, I hear what you're saying, Danny. What you're really saying is it has more to do with in- interventionism. It has more to do with the potential for Americans to be in big trouble, uh, you know, be, be accused of perhaps war crimes or something else. It has really got the bejeebers scared out of the CIA and others <laughs> potentially right here, huh? But it's a perfect storm because Americans are furious the idea that the Saudis might be behind this. They want to not only know about it, they're going to want to end this alliance. You know, this alliance yeah. is based on, quote, shared values. <laughs> you know, yeah, well, Daniel, know uh, you know, the, the, real, the alliance is really based on a, an agreement uh, that allows the United States dollar to have value where it otherwise would not have. And that's, we know, a Kissinger sent... Uh, was sent over to uh, and Nixon during the Nixon years. They made agreements with the Saudi Arabians in order to demand the sale of oil from the OPEC countries be paid for in dollars. That is the petrodollar system that replaced the gold dollar system. And now, of course, we are seeing uh, countries like Russia and China uh, really standing up against that, and they are importing huge amounts of gold. Daniel, I'm sorry, we're out of time. I've got to go now. We've got a commercial break, and then we're going to talk to William Angdahl. And, in fact, we're going to talk to him exactly about that. But I want to follow up with you as much as possible on this on this uh, story, Daniel. So uh, I want to thank you very much for being with us today, and I look forward to doing it again very soon in the near future. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jay. Folks, don't go away. We will be right back with William Angdahl. And he's answering the question, why are the Russians and Chinese buying so much gold, tons of it? Don't go away. We'll be right back with Mr. Engel. Avino Silver and Gold Mines is a diversified, low-cost producer with operations in Mexico and Canada. Avino is growth-oriented and recently completed a major expansion at its Mexican operation, which doubled its silver equivalent output in 2015. Avino is partnered with Samsung CNT and is now an official metal supplier to one of the world's largest manufacturers of consumer electronics and builder of some of the most prolific engineering projects worldwide. Avino's shares are listed on the NYSE as MKT and the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ASM. If you want a silver lining in your portfolio, think Avino. 
Because when it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again William Engdahl. He's the author of one of the most insightful and, I think, correct accounts of American monetary history that I have ever read, and that is The Gods of Money. And now he has uh, published another book. Well, actually, he's published many, many books over the years, but he's published another book uh, that we want to talk to him a little bit about today. It's called The Lost Hegemon, Whom the Gods Would Destroy. And, of course, he's talking about uh, the, the existing hegemon of which uh, years truly is in its very heart here in New York City. You know, I hope that all of you listening to this show will pick up a copy of William's book, the latest book, The Lost Hegemon. Uh, to do so, you can click on the banner at J. Taylor Media, uh, and it will take you right to a place where you can buy the book. Uh, he, William writes many articles um, that you can avail yourself to free of charge. Go to williamangdell.com. That's Angdell spelled E-N-G-D-H-A-L.com. Go there and uh, avail yourself to many of the articles, and one, in fact, I want to talk to him today about is titled, Why Are Russia and China Buying Gold? Tons of it. So, William, I'm really glad you could join me again. Thanks for, for taking the time to talk with us. Well, I always enjoy talking with you. It's always fun and always insightful. You tell us things that we don't hear very often or never hear in the United States because it's in somebody's interest for us not to hear that. Um, I'd like, as, as I say, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about this Russia and China Buying Gold article that you wrote. In 1971, after Nixon closed the gold window and thus shut down the international gold standard, Kissinger arranged to keep value in the dollar, keep a bid under the dollar, by arranging with Saudi Arabia to demand dollars for oil sales. Can you talk a little bit about how that has impacted geopolitics globally and why it is important to know that fact in the context of your article, Why China and Russia Are Now Building Up Their Gold Reserves? Well, Jay, the August 1971 decision by uh, Richard Nixon to tear up an international treaty that had been agreed by uh, all of the Bretton Woods partners and unilaterally without agreement of the other parties, without the French or the Germans or the Japanese or anybody uh, uh, signing on to that, because simply the U.S. post-war economy had become obsolescent, stagnant, the uh, technology base of, of the steel industry, the automobile industry, and so forth by 1967-1969 was slipping far behind the quality of the Europeans. The Europeans were turning out world-class cars. The Germans still turn out the best cars ever uh, on the the broad range in the world that I know of. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they began building up surplus dollars in their trade accounts because Americans preferred to buy quality cars, not a piece of of junk that Detroit was turning out, beginning to turn, turn out like that. So they were buying Japanese, German, and uh, just to an extent French cars, but the quality wasn't as good. And the by 1967, the crisis of the Bretton Woods uh, system broke on the trading floor of the, the British uh, Bank of England, mm-hmm. on the gold trading floor, 
because the French and other parties were demanding, instead of dollars, they were demanding gold, which under Bretton Woods' rules was, was an option. Mm -hmm. If the central bank held so many billion dollars, they could redeem it in gold bullion. Well, the gold vaults of the City of London and the gold vaults, or the Bank of England and the gold vaults of the Federal Reserve were becoming perilously drained in August 1971, such that a assistant secretary of the Treasury, who was rather little known at that point, but became infamous later, named Paul Volcker, advised <laughs> Richard Nixon to simply shut the gold window of the New York Fed, which is what Nixon did. And it's important to know that uh, Paul Volcker, his lifelong, has been uh, not a protege, but a, a retainer, let's call it. He's a civil servant kind of retainer of David Rockefeller and the Rockefeller family. Managing, after he retired from the Fed, he managed uh, uh, the fortunes of the Rockefellers and, and uh, uh, his entire life before he came to Treasury in the uh, late 60s, he was with Chase Manhattan Bank, the bank of David Rockefeller. So U.S. went off the gold standard. The dollar promptly dropped 40% because the deficits of the federal government were getting huge. And in 1973, this is something I, as far as I know, I've uniquely uh, put together. In 1973, in May, there was a meeting, and uh, now some people will say this is conspiracy theory. This is not conspiracy theory. This is a conspiracy fact. The Bilderberg meeting of that year, May 1973, featured, it was held in Salt in Sweden. I happened to be in possession, in secure possession, of the confidential protocols of that meeting, the attendees list and so forth. They met in Salchubaden, Sweden, outside Stockholm. It was David Rockefeller. It was the heads of all the major Anglo-American oil companies. The Rothschilds were there for BP, or Shell, rather. And uh, they talked about an approaching or imminent rise, dramatic rise, in the price of OPEC oil. Mm. And it was all in kind of coded language, but if you read it, it's very clear. Uh, the, the featured speaker selected to give it was, was Wal uh, Walter Levy, who was a consultant to what's today called Exxon Mobil. Mm -hmm. And uh, he outlined a price scenario where the price of OPEC oil would go up 400%. Mm -hmm. And in a short period of time, that's a huge shock to the world economy. Sure. And what did these Bilderberg chaps like Rockefeller and Rothschild and, uh, uh, you know, the heads of these oil companies talk about? They didn't talk about what diplomatic moves can we uh, engage to convince the Saudis and the other OPEC producers not to do that. Not, it's not in their interest. It's not in the world economy's interest. No, they said, what do we do with all the dollars? How mm -hmm. do we cycle the petrodollars, as Kissinger put Kissinger was invited to that meeting, by the way. Mm -hmm. At the time, he was Secretary of State for Nixon. And, and uh, so, lo and behold, six months later, the Yom Kippur War kicks off, thanks in no small part to the shuttle diplomacy of Henry Kissinger between Damascus and, and Tel Aviv and so forth, uh, lying to both sides. But the trigger was Kissinger armed uh, Israel against the vehement protests of, of the king of Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. And I had the pleasure, and I, it really was a pleasure, uh, to be invited to an annual retreat or conference uh, of the former oil minister, who was oil minister in, 
1973 when the crisis hit, Sheikh Zaki Yamani in his residence outside of London. And after the conference presentation, he had read my book, A Century of War, mm-hmm. where I did all this. And he was just flabbergasted. And he said, Mr. Engdahl, I would like you to come to my home for dinner and a discussion because I'm completely fascinated by what you reveal in your book, Century of War. And in the course of the discussion, it was he, he was, well, I think he's still alive. He, he's a deep intellectual. He has a library, he told me, in, in uh, Riyadh of some 50,000 volumes. And uh, in his London home, he had a huge library. It was just beautiful. And, you know, he was a genuine intellectual, a thinker. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'll tell you something. Until I read your book, nobody had put together what happened for this, uh, the Yom Kippur War and the oil shop. Mm-hmm. And he said, I, I'll tell you a personal anecdote, Yamani said to me. I was asked by my king, and my king then treated me like one of his sons. He didn't trust his own sons. Uh, he sent me as the personal direct emissary of the king of Saudi Arabia to the Shah of Iran, uh, Reza Pahlavi, to ask the Shah, why are you at the December OPEC ministers meeting, as a state meeting rather, Uh, 1973, why is Iran insisting on such a dramatic further price increase of oil? The first price increase was the embargo. But then what do you do after you lift the embargo? And Yamani said, I delivered the message from my king to to the Shah. The Shah said to me, my dear Yamani, if your excellency wants the answer to his question, I suggest you go to Washington and ask Henry Kissinger. (laughs) And that that literally was a direct quote from from the money. In fact, Henry Kissinger and David Rockefeller were the patrons of the Shah back then. Mm -hmm. And all the oil deposits went into Chase Manhattan Bank, Mm -hmm. the National Iranian Oil Company, things like that. Yeah. So uh, then... You had the game going. The dollar was suddenly supported by oil, which then was always traded after the war in dollars instead of pound sterling before the war because the dollar was the dominant currency. It was fungible. Everybody could accept it and and so forth. It was the world reserve currency. I think more than 85% of all central bank reserves back then, maybe even more. And so Kissinger called that recycling the petrodollars. We... Mm-hmm. Get, get the uh, Saudis and the Kuwaitis and so to invest. Suddenly they have four times more dollars for every barrel of oil they sell in the world market. So they were just rolling in dough, and the dough was dollar dough. So long about uh, two years later, the structure started to get wobbly because Germany, Japan, France, as would be expected, began uh, making proposals. Listen, we'll sell you German high technology to build your economy, Saudi Arabia, Mm -hmm. or uh, Iran, or Kuwait. Uh, But we want to buy your oil with German marks, or Uh French francs, or Japanese yen. So Washington sent the assistant treasury secretary, Jack Bennett, to Riyadh to cut a deal with with the uh, monarchy. The Saudis will guarantee that no OPEC member ever sells oil for any currency but dollars. Mm. And in return... U.S. will sell uh, U.S. military equipment to create the most modern army in the Middle East, aside from Israel. And uh, that was basically the deal. And mm-hmm. that held until Saddam Hussein in Iraq, uh, you know, back before he was toppled by desert, uh, whatever desert thing it was called. Desert Storm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or the Shock and Awe. Or, yeah. 
whatever. Yeah. Is. So that that was the basis of what then was called the petrodollar. Today, we don't really have a petrodollar system, in my view. We have, and now what we have is a dollar backed by F-16 fighter jets and Abrams tanks, just raw military power. And that's a dangerous development because that's what it does is drive other countries like China and Russia to combine their strengths to cooperate and defend against this uh, brute called Washington and the neocons that are making wars everywhere to keep the dollar alive. So it's a very, very shaky edifice. It's no longer a petrodollar. All right. All right. So, uh, I mean, I was under the impression that the U.S. military was being used to try to force countries to continue to uh, use the dollar to purchase uh, oil and other items. I don't think so. I don't feel that's the case. Uh huh. They can't really do much about the fact that Russia and China are doing okay, uh, but uh, okay. of dollars deals, or Iran is only accepting euros for its yeah. oil. Okay, but you had you had mentioned that, and I think you were implying, and certainly we've had other guests on our show that have implied that the reason we went to war against Saddam was exactly that he was he was uh, you know wanting to pay for or wanting to accept euros, uh, and then recently I believe you did some work sh- suggesting that the reason that the U.S. T- took out uh, or destroyed um, Gaddafi was because he was competing with the dollar by setting up a a gold dinar system there mm-hmm. and wanted to expand that throughout a pan-African trading system, and they had to yeah. take care of him. So my yeah. thinking is that maybe what our military is, is trying to do is to force countries and to send a message to anybody else that might try to go off the dollar standard uh, that they better not try to do that. You're, what you're suggesting is if that is in their minds, they, they're not able to continue or that that's breaking down. Their ability to achieve their objectives... Uh, is is declining dramatically, and that's that's why Washington is in such a feeding frenzy to make wars everywhere in Ukraine and Syria and Libya uh, to to challenge the Chinese in the South China Sea. Uh, they're just hotted up in every part of the planet, it seems these days. But it's not having the effect, and that's the fascinating thing, Jay. It's yeah. not having the effect because. Uh, you know, you rub the magic genie and uh, poof, this miracle happens. Uh, you know, another another one bites the dust, another uh, rival mm-hmm. is eliminated. Excuse me. It's not happening. Yeah. Okay, so we have this, uh, it seems to me, a bipolar world to a great extent now. On the one hand, you know, the, the countries, and I'm not really convinced that, that the Europeans, you, you would know better than I because you live in Germany, that the Europeans are as firmly behind the United States and NATO as we are led to believe in the United States they are. But it seems to me that you have, you know, you have the NATO block on the one hand, and on the other hand, then you know, you know, which which includes, of course, Japan and Europe, and and the TPP, which the U.S. has has forced through, essentially to try to, I think, to try to bring in other Asian countries to, uh, to to emasculate China, perhaps. But it seems to me that we have this bipolar world now, and this is where I'm, I think this is a very interesting. What you're talking about, why Russia and China are buying gold? Why why are they? First of all, how much gold do you think China has been importing? And how much? How much do they have? I know they're very secretive about it, and it's, it's my sense that China would almost rather us not realize how much gold they're acquiring, so that they can continue to do it at the most favorable price possible. Well, that's exactly the case. Okay, so what? What? Are you, what is your sense, and how much gold has China acquired? And then, 
uh, and their policy, it's interesting to note, I, I think I read somewhere that they actually have a division of their army that's responsible for trying to acquire gold in, in I guess, to explore and develop or to, to, to build gold reserves in China. Mm-hmm. What, are, what is your sense in terms of the amount of gold that China has and how does that play into and how is that being used to try to defend their sovereignty against the NATO bloc? China, this is a fascinating thing. I've, I've had uh, varying thoughts on that over the last uh, couple of years. But I, I'm convinced that the Chinese government, through its uh, sovereign wealth fund as well as its central bank, has all oh, perhaps three or four times more the amount of gold they claim they have uh-huh. reserves. They don't, like you say, they don't want to draw uh, a red flag to the bull of, of Washington. Uh, so they, you know, they simply lie. <laughs> uh, China, interestingly enough, is the world's, uh, you know, we have this impression that South Africa is the world's leading gold producer. No, no more. Guess what? It's number seven, and China is number one in tons mined per year. And interestingly enough, Russia is number two. Mm-hmm. And yeah. both of those countries are buying gold in huge quantities at the time the price is uh, significantly low and you know five year lows it's it's gone up a little bit since january but that isn't anywhere near what it was five years ago and what they are doing in my view is very quietly building the basis and the chinese silk road the one belt one road this network beautiful network is one of the projects that will save mankind if we don't blow ourselves up with some stupid uh, military moves beforehand, is the crisscrossing of all of Eurasia from, from the borders of the European Union, in fact, into the European Union, through Belarus, through Russia, into Central Asian countries, into Iran, into uh, China, India now. Uh, Indonesia is going to become a, a partner to this through port development that will link the port side of the One Belt, One Road. And you will have a Eurasian continent independent of NATO, militarily defensible because it's a landmass, and the U.S. Navy with its fleet of, uh, what do you call it, lily pad bases on the aircraft carriers, becomes simply redundant. It becomes impotent. Mm -hmm. So... uh, what ironically, what the stupidity of the neocons in Washington and the, the last government since George Herbert Walker Bush back in in the eighties and Ronald Reagan uh, created, they they have now created the worst nightmare of geopolitics. Founder Alfred Mackinder in England, and that is a unity in the nations of Eurasia to defend against what they perceive as an enemy that's out to destroy them. Mm -hmm. And that is, the Washington policy is a policy of, uh, I use the term empire because there's no better word to describe it, like Mm -hmm. the Roman Empire or the British Empire. It's an empire in its terminal decay phase the last 30 or 40 years. Mm -hmm. And it's kept itself alive through looting the former states of the Soviet Union after 1990. Uh, Before that, it did it through uh, various other means. And now it's, and then came China with its cheap labor, so American multinationals, you know, had a bonanza with that for a few years. 
But now all of that is, is coming to an end. China and Russia are making military cooperation like a NATO uh, through the Shanghai cooperation countries. Uh, they are building infrastructure. They, they don't want war. They want to build. They want to build up their economies. Mm -hmm. Russian economies since the Cold War and the Yeltsin uh, uh, plundering, uh, you know, they urgently want to build a new Russia. And they can build a new Russia. They have some of the most brilliant engineers and scientists on the planet. And I've met some of them. Mm -hmm. they, are, they are awesome. In America, we don't consider science and engineering to be uh, salonfeg or, or chic anymore. And yeah. children want to become Wall Street stockbrokers and criminal bankers. And stuff. Right. Parasites, essentially. Yeah, parasites. Um, well, that's really interesting then, but uh, what role is gold playing? I mean, I noticed that it seems to me I've read that the Russians are are essentially selling some oil to China in exchange for gold. And I, I suppose, uh, you know, the Russians are not accepting dollars for their oil sales. Uh, maybe they do in some cases. I don't well, know. But it's, it's variable because of the sanctions they have to still. But, uh, yeah. Okay. But, uh, but do you see the gold? That are, are, is the idea here to build up a, a monetary system, a stable monetary system, and with gold as its foundation among these? Uh, among I am this, convinced of that. Jay. Yeah. I am convinced of that the Chinese are... Uh, you know, they have this expression, lose face. Well, the face are these masks, if you've ever seen Chinese theaters, with fixed expressions. So behind the mask, the real intention of the Chinese is beginning to emerge, the Central Bank of People's Bank of China and so forth, and that is to build an alternative monetary system to the dollar system. Mm -hmm. One that will be stable, in fact. And uh, as you pointed out, uh, Russia's economy, Russia doesn't have hardly any debt to speak of. They're well, net exporters. Yeah. yeah, they're not. You know, when Moody's and company started calling them junk-level uh, debt when the sanctions were applied, this was a, this was a fraud. The Wall Street rating agencies, Russia has no danger of default. It had $300 billion in, in uh, central bank reserves at that time. It had a, a, a national public debt of 18% of GDP. U.S. has 103. Uh, Greece has uh, stratospheric. Uh, yeah. you know, it's in the two, three hundreds. Japan, my God, they, you know, these are countries. Yeah, that, even worse, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm just wondering, though, the Chinese economy, in my way of thinking, and again, my way of thinking is influenced as much as I don't want it to be by the pro constant propaganda that we get here in the United States, that the Chinese economy probably does have some issues, does have some problems. Uh, the bridges that are built to nowhere and so forth, it is not a free market economy by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, but if but on the other hand, if you have a union of various countries that are, that are combined with a stable and a sound asset-based monetary system as opposed to the, uh, what I can only call a counterfeit fiat system that the West is built on, without yep. any gold, then I would think they would have a chance to, to come out of whatever problems that they have and to build up uh, an economy better than we have here, where the parasites is essentially have eaten away all the wealth of the middle class and the industrial base in the United States. You no, agree? I, I fully agree with you, Jake. The problems of the Chinese economy are partly demographic. 30 years ago, they had the ideal demographics 
to uh, have this unlimited flow, seemingly, of, of cheap labor from the rural countryside. That now is, is peaking out. It began back in 2008, uh, according to studies I've seen, and 2007, 2008. And then the labor force in China began demanding and getting higher wages for their work. And at that point, I think the Western financial crisis began, not mm-hmm. because of the real estate bubble, but because of, of that whole Chinese demographic shift. Uh-huh. What the Chinese are doing now is transforming the economy into, you know, they've built all the skyscrapers and the highways and all the things that they need internally. And now this is what the Silk Road is so beautiful about. It's a trillion-dollar potential project. I guess it probably will end up costing two or three. And all of that investment will be for infrastructure, transportation arteries, that will link the entire Eurasian uh, land space, the biggest land space in the world, and bring transportation infrastructure into remote villages, into uh, mining areas, into uh, agriculture areas that never had access to a quote-unquote market before. Mm -hmm. And this is the the real point, that... uh, this idea of free market, there is no free market in nature. There is mm-hmm. no free market in the world. Markets are man-made. Mm-hmm. And uh, when Milton Friedman or uh, Washington talk about free trade and free markets, there's a lie behind that because they know full well it's, the, it's what the British did when they repealed the Corn Laws in the 18th, 19th century. It's free for the most powerful uh, uh, corporate interests right. to dominate the market. So it's not really free at all. It's just a nice, clever rhetorical term. Right. But the, but the markets that are going to be created across Eurasia are staggering. Yeah. This is going to bring trillions and trillions of dollars in the GDP of those countries. And we in the West are sitting there with our thumbs in a certain place uh, looking with our duh, uh, mm-hmm. You know, the politicians in Europe and so forth, maybe now finally uh, some of them are beginning to wake up and realize this is the salvation of the European economies because they are bankrupt, they are over-indebted, and they are not generating jobs. Demographically, Europe is a dying continent. Uh, The United States uh, has become a rust belt uh, many, many years ago, and 2007 just kind of finished it off. You know, it's it's just a disaster. So this is, as I say in in some of my recent articles, the East is building and creating, the West is destroying and killing. Yeah. William, let me ask you, uh, does India fit into this new uh, environment, into this new system? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, because there you have, you know, China and India with the two largest populations in the world. You have the raw materials uh, from from Russia and Iran and various places like that. Uh, it it just it just really is is an amazing connection when you think if if India joins it. My sense has been that India has been more on the fence. You know, trying trying under Modi, not anymore no. under Modi. He, uh, India and China have come historically closer together than they have been in perhaps a century. Yeah. 
the British geopolitics uh, was always to play India off against uh, against China and Russia. Uh, Russia has very good relations with the Modi government in, in India, defense sales and so forth. And India is a member of the BRICS group, which has this BRICS infrastructure bank, uh, the New Development Bank. Yeah. So, and, and India now is formally linked into the China Silk Road. They are members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Oh, okay, that's very important. And, uh, yes. as, as of the, this year, mm-hmm. as is Pakistan, and this is the devilish thing: the British, when they dismembered India and Pakistan from the British Empire, Lord Mountbatten after World War II, mm-hmm. they did so in a way to create permanent friction between those two countries. And Kashmir was the, the rubbing point of that friction. Mm-hmm. Now and. China, which has an interest in Kashmir as well, China, Pakistan, and India are all members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, as is Russia. So it's a fascinating change. The the world is changing, and the mainstream media in the West doesn't have a clue. It's clueless. It seems to be clueless, no question about it. One other question comes to mind, though, as you talk about the BRICS. Brazil is having its trouble. I don't know if that trouble is as great as what we're led to believe it, it is having. I have an idea that probably there are some NGOs that are involved in, in uh, there trying George to stir Soros, things up. George Soros, everywhere you go. Even National Endowment for Democracy. Even this, the, I wrote about, uh, I think, a year and a half, two years ago, when uh, uh, Rousseff was, was re-elected, uh, the U.S. did everything to destabilize that election, yeah. uh-huh. and it, they failed. And uh, this so-called Operation Car Wash, it's, it's all a sting operation by the CIA, U.S. State Department, the NGOs of Washington, yeah. to get rid of one of the key pillars of the BRICS, right. who's Petrobras scandal, it's as simple as that. Right. And they've organized the, the street protests like they do in, in Ukraine and all these other places in Hong Kong with the Umbrella Revolution. And, uh, you know, the, the, the point isn't corruption. Who in Washington is not corrupted? Exactly. But the point is, what are national leaders doing for their country and for the world? And uh, everything I see is, is that uh, Dilma Rousseff, uh, as was Lula before, but much more than Lula, uh, is intent on developing Brazil as an alternative to an imperial satrapy of, of, of Washington, which mm-hmm. was after mm-hmm. World War II. Yeah. Well, it's all it's fascinating stuff, uh, William. I really We're out of time. It's, it always goes so fast with you. Uh, there are other articles I want to just mention to my listeners that they should go and read. Uh, and, and they all really, as I see it, dovetail into your last book, The Lost Hegemon, Whom the Gods Would Destroy. The stuff we're talking about today fits yep. in with that. And this is an extremely well-documented book, as all of William's books are. Uh, I would really suggest strongly to my listeners you go buy this book, but also go to uh, William's website. There's an article there I wanted to, if we had time, would ask William to talk about it. We just simply don't have time. Iran links to Eurasia with the Persian Canal. China Railway links Ethiopia to the Red Sea. Amazing. I wasn't aware of this. Uh, another article that I think is very interesting in light of what's going on now in Syria, Kurd autonomy, is it Kerry's Plan B or Putin's Plan A? All very, very fascinating stuff. William, I want to thank you very much for being with us and I hope we can do this more often you're 
Yeah, uh, I, I enjoy it very much, Jay, and I, from my side, I'd be more than willing. Well, you're, it's, I, I want people to read uh, your material because it, it gives them a chance to uh, think outside of the box. So thank you very much for being with us, and we'll look forward to doing it again sometime in the near future. Thank you, Jay. Well, that is all the time we have for this week. Uh, next week, we're going to have Ellen Brown joining us, and Ellen always has some very interesting and insightful things to say about the banking system and other issues related to that topic. We do hope you'll check in next week and listen to that show. Until then, let me say goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 